Hi everyone, my name is Matt. I'm your guest preacher this morning, and uh, thank you very much. It's uh, it is super great to be back. If if you don't know me, if you're new, uh, my name is Matt, a lead pastor here. Spent the last two months on a little sabbatical. Um, and I just right out of the gate, I just want to say a huge thank you to our elders. Earlier in the spring, I just shared to them that I, I was feeling a little uh, uh, tired. And, uh, and that morphed very rapidly into them saying, get out of here and rest. And so uh, uh, there wasn't a day in the last two months that I, I wasn't profoundly impacted by the generosity of our elders to just uh, see me refreshed and... Uh, in a position to continue to pour into you. So I am so grateful for elders in our church who pour into me. Uh, super grateful for Pastor Ron who uh, took on extra leadership in my stead and super grateful for Pastor Jason who's almost too good at preaching most weeks, I would say. So I was like, I'm coming back July. It's no, uh, just super, super grateful for a gifted, uh, amazing team here. Um, but the staff actually, they. Uh, oh, one more thing. I, I, the last few months, I've been going to different churches in town and out, out of town, and, and which has been kind of refreshing. It's been a little bit nice. I don't do that. I'm usually here on Sundays. Um, but every single week, as good as it might have been or different or whatever, I just longed for this place because I love you. And uh, so it is so good to be back here uh, this morning. Um, but yeah, the staff called me this, this, this past week urgently saying, we need you back now because the, the sermon text is on humility and no one's more qualified than you to preach on that, Matt. <laughs> and I accepted the call and I said, you know what, you're absolutely right. And um, so here we are. No, that last part didn't happen, uh, strange, strangely. Um, but we're in this, we're in this uh, little series in the book of Philippians, which is such a beautiful letter the Apostle Paul has written to Philippians. I have in my, in, in my Bible, every time it says joy or rejoice, circled in this five-chapter letter, and it's all over the place. My, my Bible is filled with circles because it's this great theme of the text. And yet even in a church um, that's, that's being persecuted... And, and actually still remaining faithful in the midst of it. It's such an ideal church in, in many regards. They themselves, this great church in Philippi, are actually uh, experiencing some division. Now, we spent the better part of a year walking through 1 Corinthians, which is a, was a church full of division. And so it becomes this norm. It's like, oh man, there's division in all these churches. Like, what's the deal? Well, here's the deal. Uh, ch a church is a spiritual family. That's one of the analogies that the Bible uses for the church. It's a spiritual family. And here's something that actually happens in families. Don't know if you're aware, but fighting. Fighting kind of happens in families sometimes. Not mine, not yours, I'm, I'm sure. Not our church. But fighting happens in families, I hear, right? And so um, that's happening to some degree. But what's fascinating is the way in which Paul addresses to this thriving church, this faithful church that, yes, is experiencing some persecution, but the way that he pleads with them to be unified fascinates me. The approach Paul takes to his call for unity is he, he says, each one of you in the church, be humble. And there's the solution. If every single member of the church would have a humble posture, guess what'll happen? There'll be unity and not division. And so Paul says, complete my joy. Just make my joy complete. Do something for me. Make me joyful. Would you be unified? And here's how to be unified. 
each one of you have a humble posture. And so, so right out of the gate in, in Philippians chapter two, verse one, let's just start to read. We're gonna work our way through it and then we'll unpack it with our time. He says in verse one, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, now this word can probably better be translated just so we get it, better be translated because. Like he, he's asking these questions that are really facts for the Christian. Because there is encouragement in Christ. Because there is comfort from love in Christ. Because there is participation in the spirit of God. Because there is affection and sympathy in him. Because, so because of these things, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That doesn't mean a bunch of robots who act the same and all that kind of thing, but be on the same mission. Be Christ-centered all of you. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, just let's just stop for a second. Paul is going somewhere. He's going to deliver an imperative to them. I've already told you what it is. Be humble, church. But before he gets there, I love what he does. Before the imperatives that he's about to give the Philippian church, he starts by reminding them of the blessings of the gospel. I don't know about you, but if, 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 you've, if you're exploring the Christian life or you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, I'm not sure if you've ever felt this way, but the sense that really all the Christian life is is a bunch of imperatives. Do this, don't do that. Act this way, don't act that way. Do this, don't do that. Right? I don't know, does the Christian life ever feel that way to you? I mean, sometimes the preaching you hear might feel that way. Don't act this way, act this way. Your sexuality should look like this. Your morals should be like that. You should do this with your money. You shouldn't do that, right? If we're not careful, the Christian life seems to just feel like do's and don'ts. What Paul's doing here is so pastoral. He's starting by saying, isn't it encouraging to have Jesus? Man, haven't you experienced the comfort of Jesus in you? Like, haven't you experienced his affection and his sympathy for you? Like, he's starting by just inviting us to recall the blessings and the wonder of the gospel. And so, so he invites us to look to the promises of God found in Jesus here right out of the gate, and then he gets to it. He, he goes on to state two negative imperatives with each one followed by a positive imperative. Let me show you. Look at verse three. Here's the negative imperative. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, followed by a positive imperative. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Another negative imperative. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, positive imperative, but also to the interests of others. That's what this text is about. But with the remaining verses... Paul has no better example to give the Philippians than to show them the humility and the exaltation of Jesus for them to both adore and to emulate. And what he's about to write here is not original to Paul. It was a song that was sung in the church already at this point. I think Hillsong wrote it. I'm not sure. I don't know the dating exactly, but I think it's Hillsong. And anyway, so Paul's just quoting this song that they knew in the church. Like 30 years into the Christian faith, this is a new church plant, and yet this is a 
it's like the, their apostles' creed of sorts. Like it's just something they knew and something they recited. And Paul wants, because he wants them to be unified by each of them being humble, he's gonna show them Christ and his humility by reciting this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's just dwell there for a minute and pray and then we'll dive into this. Jesus, thank you for going to such depths to save us. And so, Lord Jesus, we see what Paul's doing here. We already see that he's calling um, us to humility and that there's no better place to look for that than to you, Jesus. So I pray that our eyes would be fixated on you this morning, that your word would um, convince our minds and penetrate and fill our hearts. Would you do that, Lord, this morning? May this not be some sort of exercise, some sort of lecture, but Lord, would it be a part of the life transformation you're doing in us as we sit under your word, Lord, help us uh, apply it. And would you help us by impressing it on us by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. I just wanna confess to you, I was never good at math. The earliest year in high school that you were able to take the alternative math course, I was in that class. And uh, that's what I did, but, but we're required in this text to do a little bit of math. Thankfully, I think it's like grade three level math. We're just, we're just, we're doing, we're doing some adding and subtracting here. So hopefully I've got it right. Uh, but what, where I'm getting this, this, um, this math is actually in verse three, where it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When Paul says count here, in most of your translations, it'll say count. Paul is borrowing an ancient mathematical word that means to calculate. So he's asking us to make a calculation, each person in the church. And here's the calculation we are to do. Here's my scribble. Just like in high school, I had to cross some things out and correct my own work. Um, here's what it says. It says, First, add up the needs of others. We are to add up the needs of others. Meanwhile, we are to subtract our own self-interest. And in that calculation, what we discover is it should lead us to the solution of what would benefit others most. And then we are to act upon the result of that calculation. That's what we're meant to do. That's what verse three says, calculate these things. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the math equation. Think of others and their needs. Subtract our own self-interest and we will come to the conclusion of what will do good for those around us. That is the goal, the object Paul is after, the solution of the mathematical equation he is after here. And even though the word humility is only seen here in verse three, 
the virtue of humility is the central theme running through this entire text. This meaty theological uh, portion about Christ is meant to simply be an example to us of the humility we are meant to embody ourselves. So what does such humility actually look like from the Christian on the ground? Well, C.S. Lewis, I think, tells it well in his beautiful book, Mere Christianity, when he said, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be, I love C.S. Lewis, he will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So judging by C.S. Lewis, it looks like humility looks like a weird guy enjoying life too much, I guess. But he really, he really uh, narrows it down in mere Christianity when he says it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Hear the difference? We all know people who think less of themselves. I'm terrible. I'm the worst. I'm awful. Oh, look what I did. I'm such a loser. Like that, that's just thinking terribly of ourselves. It's thinking badly of ourselves. But that's not humility. Actually, humility is just not really thinking about ourselves because others are on our minds. They're good. That is the picture of humility. And so here's how we're gonna unpack this text this morning. It's so rich, it's so dense, but I really want to get to what Paul is after in verses three and four. So we're gonna really focus our gaze this morning on humility, even though there's so much that could be unpacked. Here's our outline this morning. First, why humility matters. Second, why it's hard to be humble. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about you know, why it's hard for Tyson, Pastor Tyson, to be humble with those boyish good looks and musical talent. No, why it's, why it's hard for all of us to be humble, actually. We're going to look at that. And then third, how to grow in humility. So let's start with the first, why humility matters. Because you might be asking, like, is humility such a big deal? Like, like you were talking just earlier, like, man, Christian life sometimes feels like a bunch of imperatives. Do this, don't do this. And now I've got to tack on humility as a virtue of mine. Like, that's not a strong suit of mine. Can I just bypass that and just take on some other Christian virtues? Like, do we really need to be humble? So let's get after it. Why humility matters. Well, Stephen Lawson put it this way. He says, for a believer, humility is the most foundational of all Christian virtues because no one struts through the narrow gate that leads into the kingdom. You can't swagger your way into heaven. That's not how it works. No one high steps their way down the narrow path. We are sheep, not peacocks. Servants not sovereigns. If Christ is to fill our lives, we must empty ourselves. If Christ is to increase, we must decrease. Do you hear what's at stake? 
Jesus put it this way. He, he told a story. We see it in Luke chapter 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it tells us in this text that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's what he said. He said, two men went up in the temple to pray, one, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus goes on, he concludes, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And then he concludes with a phrase he uses four times in different contexts throughout the gospels. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus told this poor parable to warn self-righteous people. Actually, better than that, Jesus told this parable to warn religious self-righteous people who treated others poorly and who looked down on others that they've missed the point so much that they're actually lost. Self-righteous religious people thinking they're in good standing with God but who lack humility and therefore don't even know him. See, the kingdom of God is sometimes referred to as the upside-down kingdom because God's ways um, are the complete opposite of, of what we typically think, what feels natural to us a lot of times. It starts with Jesus. It's through being defeated by earthly powers that Jesus actually conquered the spiritual forces of evil and inaugurated his kingdom. And being inaugurated in this kingdom, uh, all kinds of things were happening where weakness is actually power, where spiritual bankruptcy is actually wealth, where suffering actually leads to glory, where we are to die to self in order to live to Christ and for Christ and where the humble are exalted. That's the way of the kingdom. So why does humility matter? Well, it matters because it's the way of the kingdom of heaven and the way of humility is the only road that leads to life because it's only in recognizing our need, our utter lostness, that we are able to find divine rescue. Second, why it's hard to be humble. Why it's hard to be humble and, and this is a fascinating thing, why it would even be hard to be humble. Because the Christian life is designed by God to make us humble. Do you realize this? Like, let's just dwell on a few things about the Christian life for a minute. Let's think of the cross. Well, what's there? Well, the cross tells us that all we bring to our salvation is our sin. Like, that's all we bring. The cross is where our salvation takes place, where forgiveness can be had, where we can be restored. And what do we bring to the situation? We only bring our sin that put Jesus on the cross. That's all we bring to our salvation. Look at prayer. What is prayer? As we pray, it puts us on our knees with empty hands. Think about that. What does prayer do? It puts us on our knees with empty hands. God designed it that way. 
that, that this whole process would make us humble. As we dwell on the gospel, we look to the cross and say, the only thing I brought is my sin. As we get on our knees in prayer with empty hands, we realize as we petition and we petition and we ask and we need and we come to God, that's all we bring, help. In worship, what do we bring? See, worship causes us to look up to God. As we get a gaze at who God is, we're, we're actually in awe. We're amazed. It makes us reverent. It makes us humble. Worship itself, it causes us to do that as we spend time worshiping in the word. We see more clearly who God is and his greatness and glory. And we see more accurately who we are, our flaws, our brokenness and our sin and our need. Our trials were designed by God to make us humble. What do our trials do? Well, they remind us of our frailty, how little control we are actually in. Meant to do these things. All of these aspects of the Christian life are designed by God to humble us by helping us to see ourselves rightly. And yet, our hearts struggle to grasp the gospel. It's really easy to go to church for a long time and become like the, ta- ta- uh, the Pharisee. Man, I'm doing really well. I'm, man, my life looks good. God, aren't you amazed with me? Right? Like it's so easy for us to just not grasp the gospel. It's, it's so easy for our hearts to struggle to turn to God continually in prayer. The prideful heart doesn't turn to God in prayer because we don't think we're needy or we don't think that we should bend. Our hearts struggle to worship as he deserves because we're so focused on ourselves. Our hearts struggle to recognize our frailty and our neediness even in trials. We still struggle with pride. Why? It's because we're like Adam, right? That first human being. And Satan before him. Who want in our fallen sinful nature to snatch, not offer. Right? We're graspers, not givers. What did, what did Satan want? He didn't want to merely be a worship leader in the heavens directing praise to God. He wanted to sit on the top and have the praises directed to him. That's precisely what Adam did. He didn't want to merely have communion with God. He wanted to be like God. And that is wired into our sinful nature. We're born into life this way. We're graspers, not givers. Back to verse three, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This word conceit or vain conceit has two parts in the original language, literally glory and empty. That's what conceit is, glory that's empty. In other words, it means pride with no proper basis for it. Like you're prideful, but you shouldn't be. Also to be glory empty means to be starved for validation and approval starved for validation and approval. It it means to be unsure of your significance and your value. It's been put this way to be cosmically insecure, to feel like you don't matter. I uh, was uh, a few days ago with the earthquakes happening, right? Um, A couple in California and off the coast, I think off Vancouver Island. And um, there was a lot of fear that um, we were going to follow the same pattern that Japan did when they had their massive earthquake, which was that there were two smaller earthquakes um, uh, two days in a row, and then the big earthquake, the 9.1 magnitude or whatever it was, uh, came on that third day. So there were two days in a row here of, of 
earthquakes that happened. And so there was a lot of fear that now the big one that we've all been waiting for and been learning to go under our desks at school for years at four, right, was actually coming. And, uh, and so people were really scared about that. And, and trending on Twitter was um, a bunch of people who thought the world was ending or that they were going to die in the earthquake at least. And so they were throwing it out there. Hey, if anybody has a crush on me, let me know before I die. And it was like a trending theme on Twitter. And like there were people confessing love for one another on Twitter, but people were throwing out when they thought they might die of an earthquake, like, anybody love me? Can you like my posts? Can you respond? Can I just hear some affirmations? Like, man, we're desperate. We're cosmically insecure. We feel like we don't matter. And for many of us, the purpose of the our natural bent for all of us actually is for our purpose to, is that we would feel significant, that we would gain significance, find your means to it, but that, that we would chase it with everything we've got. And so this is why there's disunity. This is why families fight because we're glory empty. We're glory hungry. We're not sure of our own value. So we chase glory. I make a mistake often when I'm hungry, like really hungry and I'm out and about in town. Um, really bad food, like fast food, smells really good. But I don't know if you're like me and you give in, you're not even done that meal and you're like, this was a terrible, terrible mistake, right? So on Canada Day, we were having some neighbors over and stuff and we were gonna be grilling hot dogs. I don't eat hot dogs like much at all, like a couple times a year maybe. And I knew that I was gonna be having hot dogs on Canada Day, but the day before I was at Costco and I was really hungry. And so I also got a hot dog at Costco because it's $1.50 with a drink, right? I was two thirds of the way through the hot dog and I was just angry with myself. Like, why did I do this? And now I'm gonna eat one tomorrow. I'm so ashamed, you know? You ever do that? You're so hungry and you're like, this seems like a great idea. You're not even done and you're like, this was awful. See, the problem for us is that it's hard to be humble because we're glory starved. There are a thousand different things that we, things that we think will make us feel significant that will satisfy the hunger. A thousand different things. Right, And so we chase money, we chase success, and we chase the things that money can get us by like, what we drive and the house we live in or where we travel or what we wear or how many social media followers we have or how many people responded to our posts and we're desperate to clamor and find out our significance or how much public notoriety we might get from this or from that and we're chasing it or how perfect our family appears to others because that would give me affirmation. We chase it and we chase it and we chase it. And here's the thing, success, appearances, getting ours, being vindicated, looking out for number one, feeling slighted and therefore retaliating. These are our ways of dealing with our glory hungry, hunger because we're glory empty. But in the end, it never satisfies like a Costco hot dog. We never get the glory we want. Some of you are like, those are amazing. I feel great after. <laughs> See, the Bible has an answer for why we're glory starved. And the world is desperate to hear it. And the answer is this, it's because we were made for God. And if we don't rest in God, we're not satisfied. We're glory empty. 
until that, that glory emptiness in our souls is so filled with God that we're satisfied and we're okay and we don't need to chase it and chase it and chase it. Think about this with me. We've all gone our own way and turned away from God and so therefore there's an infinite sized void in us. A void meant to be filled with the smile of God. A, a void meant to be filled with his love and with his delight. If he's not the center of your life and source of all your joy, you're left with an infinite sized void in your soul that you're trying to fill with money and approval and sex and accolades and likes on social media which is woefully inadequate to fill an infinite void. So you're cosmically insecure. And when you feel wronged, you lash out and you fight and you cut people out of your lives and you cause division. Does this glory empty situation describe you? Maybe a little bit. That's why it's hard to be humble. A void of cosmic proportions exists in every person. So let's land the plane here. How to grow in humility. Here's five quick tips. No, I don't have those. I don't have them this morning. I think there's only one thing. We need to truly discover what Paul is teaching us about Jesus here. That's what we need. Like we need verses 7 through 11. Like we need them. See, we're empty and we're trying to fill ourselves, whereas Jesus was full and he emptied himself. And so I, I mentioned Adam, right, the first man, and we've inherited his status. We've inherited his sinful nature, but Jesus came to rescue us out of that. I just want to do a little bit of comparison here. See, where, 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 where Adam was made in the image of God, we discover in this text, what we find is that Jesus was and is the very essence of God. Where Adam wanted to be like God, Jesus took on the likeliness of man. Where Adam wanted to exalt himself, Jesus emptied himself. Where Adam was discontent being God's servant, Jesus assumed the form of a slave. Where Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience, Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Where Adam succumbed to temptation, Jesus overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Where Adam brought the curse on the world, Jesus took the curse for the world. Where Adam was condemned and disgraced, Jesus was exalted by the Father. Do you hear the upside-down ways of the kingdom? Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him. Adam exalted himself and God humbled. Satan exalted himself and God brought him down to the depths. Jesus went down to the depths on his own and God exalted him. See, in Jesus, what we see is the greatest display of humility ever. No one ever started so high and descended so low. No one's ever given up more. No one's ever humbled themselves more than Jesus. I want to show you a slide and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Because it's really just unpacking uh, what's going on in the text. It's, it's this downward progression of Jesus. Do we have it? There it is. 
So here, here's what's going on. We see at the very beginning, we see Jesus in his pre-existent glory starts by saying, though he was in the form of God. What Paul wants to make clear with that statement is, is he wants to start with Jesus at the highest level in pre-existent glory, asserting the full deity of Jesus. But then he goes on. There's a bit of a, a descend now. There's a, a humiliation, a humility of Jesus where it says he, that he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. We see in the incarnation when Jesus took on flesh, Jesus added to his person a human nature without surrendering his divine attributes, but he fully took on humanness. And then it goes even further. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasped not meaning God, Jesus didn't get it. Grasped like Jesus didn't cling to it tightly, but released this equality with God in the sense that Jesus didn't clutch at his rights as king of glory. He didn't grasp at power. Instead, he relinquished his rights in order to serve. But then he goes lower. It says that he took on the form of a servant, but literally the word is bond servant, which is actually a slave. Jesus gave up his sovereign rights and became a slave. He identified with the lowest of society. This was far more humbling than becoming a servant. A slave had lower status, belonged to his master, owned no personal property, and had no life of his own apart from the will of his master. And Jesus assumed the form of a slave, but it goes lower. That he surrendered himself even to death. By, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Listen to this. The way, the truth, and the life died. The one who breathed life into every living thing breathed his last on the cross. Jesus died for you, but it goes lower because Jesus went even lower. It says that he died on a cross. The cross represents the rock bottom and most stunning aspect of his obedience. Death by crucifixion was so loathsome that it was reserved for the worst criminals. But not only that, it was so despised that Roman citizens could not be crucified. Romans never crucified Romans. They only crucified their enemies from neighboring countries that they were conquering and wanting to make, wanted to make a spectacle of. They wouldn't even crucify the worst of Roman criminals. But not only that, Jews believed that a person was cursed if they died on a cross. And what we discover in this text, what we see is that Jesus died and that he died on a cross the one who was eternally preexistent in glory with the Father was stripped naked and made a spectacle of on the side of the road to be mocked and to be abused, to be killed. But it really does go even lower. Jesus went even lower. He bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners, bearing our sin on the cross. Anybody ever watch Undercover Boss? This is like a decade-old reference, I'm pretty sure. There's a show about like well-to-do CEOs, major companies, companies you'd heard of, right? And then the CEO would put on a disguise and they would work on like the bottom rung of, a, of, of, a comp of their own company and kind of see it from the inside, see it from a view that they would never otherwise get to see. And the way they kind of manufactured the show was that there would be these amazing feel-good stories of incredible employees yet who really typically were in situations that they could not get themselves out of. 
And, and so the CEO would be put in a place working alongside of them, seeing how well this person worked for the company, but this crisis that they were in in their lives. And then, of course, the end of the show is that this undercover boss reveals their true identity and then helps that person out of the situation they're in. I recognize what you're doing. You're now a regional manager and you're going to make this much money. Or those medical bills that are crushing you with debt, I'm paying those medical bills for you. Or you're living in a shelter and working so incredibly for our company, I'm buying you a house. Like that would be the end of the show. Listen, when, when the CEO put on a disguise and worked for that day in the bottom rung of the company, was he no longer the CEO of the company? Well, sure he was, of course he was. And yet he stooped to the bottom to lift people out that otherwise could not do it on their own. See, Jesus stepped into human history, taking on human flesh, humbling himself like no one else ever has and yet never became less than God. He went to the bottom in order to lift us up out of our hopeless state. And this Jesus who became a slave washed his disciples' feet in the posture of a slave and then said, I've given you example. You should do the same. This Jesus who died on a criminal's cross actually said to his disciples, now take up yours and follow me. And here in our text, Paul says of this progression of Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Put on this posture, think upon Jesus, and then embody his posture. Do this, have the mindset of Christ in your dealings. Live this way. It's the urge of the scriptures to the disciple of Jesus. Humble yourselves under the example of Christ and let God exalt you. See, what I'm getting at is that we need the gospel to fill the glory empty inside of us. To break the cycle of living like Adam, we need the second Adam. We need Jesus, where through his death, uh, his life, death, and resurrection, he gives us forgiveness, new life, and empowers us to live like him. And what happens next is, is crucial kingdom stuff. We, we see that he doesn't just merely descend, but he then ascends. We see that, that, that upon the crucifixion, his death, he, he is resurrected, that God resurrects the son from the dead, raising him from the grave, and God exalts him high above all things in his ascension. He's highly exalted, and we see this be these beautiful verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that name for the Lord himself, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's whether you confess it as a believer turning to God or in judgment will confess Jesus as Lord. That is coming for Jesus. He will be exalted and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. We learn a couple things from this. First, what we see here is that no one else is exalted like Jesus. It's counterintuitive, I know, but we actually are to humble ourselves to be exalted. And no one humbled themselves more than Jesus and no one's been exalted more than Jesus. Shouldn't we follow that way? If we're looking for cosmic glory, we should look to the one who has cosmic glory. He re-entered the glory that he enjoyed with his father before the world existed. Here's the second thing we learn. No one ever truly humbles themselves before God without being exalted by God. He never forgets. When you humble yourself before God, believe me, you will be ignored or passed over many times in this world. You might even be balked at for putting others first, but God will never forget it. And when you humble yourself, you can trust. He's the one who exalts and exalts fully and exalts beautifully and exalts in a way that is so whole and rich. See, God the Father is eternally satisfied with the Son. 
And the truth of the gospel is that on the cross, God put your sins on Jesus and treated him as you deserve while at the same time giving you Christ's righteousness and treating you as he deserved. Meaning, in Christ, you are God's treasure. We see in this, in this image here how much God the Father treasures the Son and exalts him to the highest place. And when your sins are forgiven on the cross, when you turn to Jesus, God the Father looks at you and sees Christ's righteousness and he is pleased. In Christ, you have the eternal approval of God, the kind of approval that doesn't come and go, that doesn't need to be noticed by everybody because you're seen and accepted by God and nothing can satisfy you like this. That glory empty void in you gets filled rightly. When Jesus fills our hearts, we are actually freed from being full of ourselves because we're filled with Jesus, we're filled with his presence, we're filled with his love. We're filled with that security. And therefore, we're free now to live like Jesus lived in humble service of others. Look, when I, when I go to Costco and I'm already full, I'm not tempted by the hot dog. When I'm driving down the road and I've just eaten like a healthy, delicious meal and I smell the wafts of the fast food joints, I'm not even remotely tempted to eat there. Why? because I'm already filled with the good things. See, when you're not glory empty, you're not walking around starved for things that won't satisfy you, that halfway through already feel cheap. You're full, so you're freed. Freed to serve, because you're already accepted. So how do we grow in humility? We find our value and worth in Christ and we follow after his example in his strength, knowing we will be cosmically satisfied in him and that God will take care of the exalting. He will take care of the exalting. So we don't need to. Remember, those who humble themselves will be exalted. I wanted to show you a pretty staggering way that this was put on display. Ernest Gordon wrote about it. He tells this story. He was a British officer who was fighting in the Pacific during World War II when he was captured by the Japanese. And the Japanese had an honor-shame culture, and they believed that if you surrendered rather than fighting to the death, that you, your life was, was actually marked by shame. So they despised those who surrendered and didn't treat them as full human beings. So you can imagine what the prisoner of war camp's culture must have felt like when they were, when, when they were viewed as less than humans. They created prisoner of war camps that were um, referred to as hell on earth. They didn't give them enough supplies on purpose. They didn't give them enough food on purpose. And so this horrific culture of fighting and stealing food from one another and preying on the weak for self-survival existed in these POW camps. And 80,000 people died in these camps during the latter parts of World War II. And uh, Ernest Gordon's camp was given the task of helping to build a railway through the jungle um, meant to prepare for a possible invasion from India. So in terrible conditions, there was Ernest Gordon and these other POWs building a railroad into the jungle that basically went nowhere. And on the way back to the camp from working on the railroad one day, they had to hand in the shovels they'd been using for their labor. And one of the Japanese soldiers counting the shovels said there's one short. So he lined up all the prisoners and said, return the shovel now or I'm going to start killing you one by one. 
everyone looked at each other and questioned each other, started to, to accuse each other and demand that the person with the shovel give it back and nobody stepped forward. Eventually the guard picked up his gun and screamed, all die, all die, and started walking to one end of the line to start killing them one by one. Right then, a man stepped forward and said, I took the shovel. He was beaten to death on the spot by the guard and then they had to carry his body back to the camp. Upon returning to the camp, they realized that the officer had simply miscounted all the, sh- all the shovels were there. And they looked at this dead man and they realized that this was one of the only men in the camp that actually followed Jesus and was a Christian. He was loving, he was kind, he was selfless, and he actually had a life verse and it was this, no greater love has any man than this, that he laid out his life for his friends. This man's redemptive sacrifice of his own life for their sake basically broke the kingdom of heaven into the culture of hell. Gordon went on to write that they began to care for one another, love one another. His sacrificial example totally changed the culture of the camp. They set up a church and established a worshiping community. And when the war ended and they were eventually released, they washed the feet of the soldiers who had imprisoned them and forgave them for what they had done. That is the call of the Christian church. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. How can there be division in such a posture? How can there be disunity in such a culture? How can there be disunity in such a home, in such a family, in such a a ministry space, in, in, in such a employer context? That's the call of the Christian. And if it's possible in a prison camp, it is possible for the way of Jesus, for humble gospel service to permeate itself through this church in this church, in your home, in your business, in your school, in this community. So let's go back to the equation. Find your joy in this equation. Add up all the needs of others while subtracting at the same time all of your own self-interest. And what you will land on is what would benefit others most. And what I encourage you to do is act upon the result of that calculation. For those who humble themselves will be exalted. Have this mind among you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Lay it down. I'm gonna invite you to stand. Uh, We're gonna recite a prayer together if you wanna join me. If it's a conviction of your heart this morning and you want it impressed on yours, uh, I want you to to read this prayer aloud with me. It's called the Prayer of St. Francis. Not sure that he even wrote it. It's attributed to him, but it's really the the essence of his life work, of his ministry. And uh, after every single line, you could could find scripture references to go, that would go with every single line of this beautiful prayer. So I just invite you, as you let this kind of desire for a humble posture to find your filling in Christ that, that, that you don't have to search for it everywhere else but, but can lay your life down for others, I just invite you to pray this into your heart with me. Let's pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, 
faith. Where there is despair, hope. And where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.